hello everyone. I'm Avidab. I'm the editor of Yada. And I'm Divya. I'm the other editor. This is the first in a series of podcasts we'll be doing with past contributors, along with slowly opening up our archives in collaboration with the Alipur Post. We have with us today uh, poet Ranjit Hoskote, someone whose work many of us are probably familiar with. Um, we interviewed Ranjit in our first issue in 2010, and uh, he was one of the first people to support us and help us get on our feet. So it's really nice to kick off this podcast series with Ranjit today. It's like coming uh, full circle. And we will proceed with a reading of the poems and a short conversation. So hi, Ranjit, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a great pleasure, Avinab and Devia, because yeah, it's, uh, it's only when you said 2010 that I realized that a whole decade had gone by. It feels like it was yesterday. So it's great to to regroup, it's wonderful to know that Nether's uh, back in action. So all the very best with uh, this second round of life for the journal. Firstly, Ranjit, I just wanted to know, like, how have you been working and coping during this time? Uh, what has been your approach to the entire pandemic? Or are you at home right now? And by home, yes. I mean where you usually live. Where you usually yes. Live. Yeah, I'm at home in Bombay. And uh, largely, there's been no great shift in life because as writers we usually are reclusive we keep to ourselves we work from home so there's been no great change in the texture of life that way the big shift of course is that uh, there's no going to galleries or museums or to readings or concerts uh, or to restaurants or meeting friends in actual life uh, so this enhanced online activity I find rather surreal. But um, of course, the great source of anguish is, of course, the fact that all around us, there is so much suffering for those far more vulnerable than ourselves. So that's been, uh, that's been the worst aspect of the pandemic and the lockdown. Yeah, especially because you are locked in and... Uh... Yeah, there's, there's not a yeah. great deal you can do except yeah, to, yeah. to be empathetic. But in practical terms, you feel really unable to help uh, in immediate ways. Okay, perhaps before we uh, return to this and continue our conversation, do you think it's a good idea to maybe st jump straight into a reading of the two poems that we published in Nether? Sure. The Empire of Light and Botany? I think sure. we've been excited to hear you read them in your <laughs> voice. <laughs> well, both of these poems appeared in my book, Central Time, which, which was published in 2014. So uh, I'll read from the book. The Empire of Lights, after Magritte. This house has not moved a brick since midnight. Outside the front door, the street lamp has brushed the cobblestones with a moss of delay. The night glows in a yawn between darkness and day. The street flows on, soaking the canal with brittle after images of rain. The bats that have chased butterflies of meaning up the crescendos of trees all night are drowsing in their green and icy silhouettes. It is night here still. It will always be night. 
This street is wound up tight to strike at 3 a.m. and hiss a breath of doubt into waxy clouds that are talking softly about the ninja maestro who bled the clock dry. They remember the day he parted the curtains and broke the windows with his flame-colored hands. They are whispering about the jacarandas that he drowned in the sky beneath the house that has not moved a brick since midnight and how well cotton burns at noon. So that was the Empire of Lights. And do you want me to read Botany as well, right away? Yes, please. Okay, here comes Botany. Prickly garden where voices flower and run to seed. This conversation could go up in a sheet of flame. Any time, any leaf could be a bait, any tendril a booby trap. Watch your words and hers, theirs, and all your stranded thoughts. Clove and mandrake open the mouths of your mind. All dialogue here is rolling transcript for a police state. Check the names for shadows, the verbs for stains. Turn connoisseur of signs, yogi. Give nothing away except your deep shelved archive of silences. Thank you. Thank you, Rindu. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. I, I can't, like, it's hard to believe that we didn't think of this before, like accompanying the poems <laughs> with, uh, with uh, readings. So yeah, I was wondering, in, um, in Empire of Lights, what uh, resonated with you in that specific work of Magritte? Well, it's actually three works, because Magritte, as you know, came back to that subject several times, so three different paintings. But for me, the one that's always fascinated me is the one that's at the Peggy Guggenheim Museum in Venice. So there's the experience of returning physically to that, to that painting and to exploring it. But also it's a painting I've known since my childhood from reproductions. So what's fascinated me always about the painting is its strange temporality that the street is plunged in night, but the, it's a vertical painting. When you go up into it, uh, it's bright, it's daytime. And uh, just that circumstance, the strange street lamp, the, the fact that the street has nobody on it, but above there's a suggestion of vibrancy and natural life. And uh, that contrast has always fascinated me. I mean, Magritte's surrealism, as you know, is a very low-key kind of surrealism. But in this painting, uh, it's, it's just this fact that you can exist in different time scales at the same time. That has become very important to me over the years. The fact that you can live in a relatively shallow present, but also in deep geological time, uh, that things are happening at different historical scales, uh, which will affect you and transform you and transform your consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Magritte himself sort of describes his paintings as evoking the power of, of poetry, right? The power to surprise and delight. And I think that's, that's right. right. Yeah, Magritte was also very conscious of uh, the different ways in which language and image can signify your relationship to reality. Mm -hmm. So he's always been one of my favorite painters. 
botany, Ranjit, you have lines uh, such as all dialogue here is ruled in transcript for a police state. There's, there's this general undercurrent of looming danger or threat right. going on. You know, it almost feels like the speaker is again, you know, warning to give nothing away except uh, the deep shark archive of silences. So there's like, it almost feels like the poem was written yesterday. Like, how do you place the... <laughs> How, how do you place the poem in the current context uh, given like our current regime and what's going on? It seems like an eerily prescient poem. Yeah, exactly. But the fact is that we've uh, always had to deal with the pathologies of the state. I mean, they've waxed and waned in intensity. Yeah. But the, the desire for control, the paranoia about manipulating public consciousness, censorship, this has not been the monopoly of a single party or a single political ideology at any time. Uh, there's something about, there's a toxicity to power and being an authority that uh, produces these pathologies. So they were in place and you know, whenever I wrote that poem more than 10 years ago, uh, they are in place today in a much more aggressive much more and aggressive concrete way. way. So these are things that we've, as writers, we've in all times and places we've faced these dangers, and in some periods, like like the present, they are extremely salient and extremely visible, palpable, and um, in your face. Exactly, the poem feels extremely relevant right now. Yeah, because the levels of uh, control and circumscription of what you can do as a writer, as an artist, as a cultural producer. Uh, not only in India, I mean, it's, it's in Turkey, Hungary, the USA, parts of Western Europe. It's not, uh, it's, it's not uh, confined to a single society or, or nation. I think the great danger is a certain kind of authoritarian demagogic politics, authoritarian demagogic populist politics, which claims to speak uh, in the name of the people, but has no room for difference, for diversity, for contrarian or alternative positions. Um, I wanted to go back to one of the one of your quotes from the interview, where you speak about coming from a cultural position that is multiply diasporic, yeah. right? A, con a community that has had to change its first language several times over uh, the course of a millennium. And accordingly, you say, to quote, my cultural selfhood is defined by the expanding horizons of migration, not by the prison cells of regional and linguistic identity. Um, here you paint a picture of social history where there are on the one hand sort of fixed local cultures and on the other hand, migrant peoples who have to adapt to these cultures. Um, I was wondering, how do you see this picture in today's context? Or to, to phrase it a bit differently, how can this insight into your own history sort of be used uh, to, today to understand forms of migration and forced migration and to, to use your own words, to bear witness to these forms of um, historical recurrence? Yeah, I, there's never been any doubt in my mind uh, that South Asia particularly has always been a subcontinent of migrations. Uh, regional and linguistic fixity are both uh, very recent and even modern uh, constructs. 
So wherever you look, we have the evidence of this. People tend to be polyglot. They tend to have uh, diverse histories of, of travel and journeying and uh, dislocation and displacement. Uh, it's just that we are now asked to owe allegiance to some linguistic conception of a province or some notion of a mother tongue. There's, there's no, as Sheldon Pollock points out, there's no term for mother tongue in any Indian language before the colonial encounter. It's a calc from mother tongue, matrabhasha or any other term like that. Because these are ideas that emerge, as you know, from very particularly philological notions associated with German romanticism. Yeah. And they have to do with processes of modern nation formation. So if you look to what happened before that horizon, you actually free yourself because you realize that you're in a space of polyglossia. You're in a space of uh, alternative subjectivities. You're constructing yourself in different ways, different but connected ways. So I, I prefer the idea of a kaleidoscopic subjectivity. And I think that is ever more relevant today. So from that, from this point of view, on this account, what we like to call modernity would then be seen as a, as a relatively brief period. Because today with so many migrations, voluntary and forced, and this tension between what Sigmund Bauman used to call uh, the processes of liquid modernity and the opposition to it from a kind of neo-tribalism, uh, these forms of linguistic choice will actually be much more relevant linguistic choice, linguistic layering. Uh, and it also has, for me, increasingly uh, consequences which are very direct in the form of the poem. Uh, I mean, I've really, in more recent poetry, other writings, been exploring how one could transit among languages in the same text or bring in evidence of other languages. Uh, also, increasingly, in the last 10 years, I have to say, I hadn't really given it conscious thought until recently, but I've really much better integrated my practices as a poet and a translator. Mm -hmm. So what I learn from my translation, whether I'm working with Urdu or with Kashmiri or with Sanskrit, uh, it really has an effect on, on uh, how my poems shape, sound, and look. And for me, this is, I mean, this is my limited personal experience. So I don't want to offer it as a model for everybody. I don't really believe in universal models, but I think it's, it's a useful set of conceptual and very practical tools. I'm thinking, for instance, of what would it mean for a Kurdish child to now grow up in the West of Germany? What has it meant for Afghan children to grow up um, in the UK, the US? You know, there's Germany, for instance, this is the country that I'm most familiar with, uh, other than India. Uh, there's been a long history of writers of immigrant background, as they're known, who work in German, who write in German. And uh, whether they're Bulgarian or Turkish or Romanian, uh, the work they produce is really very differently inflected. And to me, this is how languages will redeem and, and, and transform themselves. It's through these infusions of experience from elsewhere. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long answer to your very precise question. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. But it, it, it kind of takes us nicely also forward. So I, I was wondering, so, I mean, would you say that your writing style has changed over the years? Like, 
uh, your like could you tell us a bit about the change in your writing process for instance in i thought that jonah whale has a much more narrative style like it's more polyphonic and it has a much greater sort of sharing of voices yeah um yeah so could you tell us a bit more about this your this trajectory and your two latest collections sure again i think for me it was uh, it was a journey towards simply integrating the different investments that i had emotional and intellectual in different fields for largely i think misguided professional reasons i tended to keep them apart for a long time my concern with the visual arts my work in poetry translations and uh, and my lifelong preoccupation with music which uh, was always there of course it informs the poems but it's come to inform the poetry in a much richer and more obvious way uh, particularly interests in polyphony uh, and also with uh, a whole avant-garde tradition if i have to call it an avant-garde tradition because it's more than 50 years old of music uh, a lot of that came into jonah will uh, but also at the heart of jonah will is my deep dissatisfaction with this notion of the lyric poem i was never a great fan of it the, particularly the lyric poem in english with its i uh and the more i thought about it the more i began to see it in its historical context in some sense it's an outcome of the enlightenment the notion of the individual as the seat of reason uh which is a to to many readers of poetry that seems like a given but if you see it from a larger perspective in the humanities it comes from the same set of contractarian and proprietarian premises that give you the modern economy yeah the enlightenment is what produces notions of property produces notions of the contract it is where the instrumentalizing of nature begins it's where the logic of colonialism and empire begins the idea that nature is just natural resources i quote akil bilgrami constantly on this uh, the point at which we began to see nature as natural resources the point at which communities became uh, constituencies the point at which uh, we gave up a uh, wisdom to live by and adopted technologies of expertise by which to further exploit our environment you know it's all of these processes that have brought us to the mess that we are in right now in terms of the environmental catastrophe that we're living through what we've done to the planet so there is no innocence to the eye of the lyric poem and that's something that has become more and more clear to me so in jonah whale my project really was to embrace diverse histories diverse voices languages and to bear witness as i keep saying to to this much more expanded portraiture of the self it had formal consequences of course it meant that the poem exploded and uh, opened itself up uh it meant also that the syntax changes and that's that's moving forward from jonah whale to more recent work which has mm -hmm. only been published in uh, journals and places um it's it's meant syntactical fluidity it's meant a certain giving up of punctuation uh, a certain slipping and sliding between voices it's important to me that you're not always certain whose voice this is yeah which also is the reason why the trope of finding one's voice uh, really doesn't mean anything to me anymore 
It's yeah. much more about hosting and playing a variety of voices. Once again, you'll, you'll see what I mean in terms of music. You know, literally, I mean, polyphony is not just a metaphor to me. It really is a, is a technique and a process. So, uh, uh, Ranjit, I just want to talk a little bit about your last collection and in what way you see it as a continuation of you know, in, uh, the the references and invocations uh, in Yonaville towards Atlas of Gospels. Uh, so, perhaps you want to. Uh, up, sorry, your voice seems to be fading out of the corner. Okay. Can you yeah. hear me now? Yes. Yeah, much better. Yeah. No, I wanted to talk about your new collection, the Atlantic and like and how you see it as a continuation of Yona Wayne. And, uh, and maybe probably end the uh, broadcast with a reading from the new book. Okay, I have to clarify that the Atlas of Lost Beliefs is the UK edition of Jonah Whale, plus or minus a few poems. Oh, okay. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, have, we haven't had a chance to, or yeah, like, a chance to read it, yeah. Yeah, so. Uh, so that's so. In that sense, it is it is Jonah Whale, but because of the title, which is the title of one of the poems, uh, it it plays up some of the 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 themes, the latent themes of the of of Jonah Whale. So for me, it's an avatar of Jonah Whale, mm -hmm. uh, and my concern in the book, in both its avatars, really has been uh, how to devise or become part of a new kind of cartography. So the ocean is is uh, is my point of reference uh, in in this in this work. So when we move from a land oriented to a to an ocean oriented history, we really also lose the fixities of identity, which then become the basis of all the kind of toxic nationalist uh, and ultra nationalist uh, ideologies that currently have us in thrall. You know, because when you're when you're out on the ocean you are looking at a completely different network of settlements, voyages, encounters, uh, collegialities. Uh, you're working across race, region, language. I'm not, it's not to paint a utopian image of the ocean. The ocean has its own histories of oppression. I mean, let's not forget what was politely called the Atlantic trade in the 18th century, you know, slavery, for instance. Yet there were other kinds of things that happened. The ocean became the carrier of cultural transformation, of new ideas and new ways of doing things. So I, I, would, I would tend to really set my faith in the ocean rather than the continent going forward mm -hmm. in terms of thinking through new, new forms of communication and affinities. And, and, and what prompted the, the title change? Is that just an editorial uh, publishing decision or? Both uh, a uh, publishing decision and also a sense that uh, maybe here was a chance to, to offer another dimension of the book, which, yeah. it's, which has actually worked because people do now see it offers a new title, offers a fresh optic through which to approach a book. And it was for a new readership in any case. And you and you have new poems in that which aren't in Yonavim. There are additional poems in that. Uh, no, there are a few poems fewer actually. Oh, there are fewer. So, yeah, so it's it's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's edited. Yeah, it's, there are no no new poems in the Atlas of Lost Beliefs, but there are a few. It's a it's a why am I mumbling? There, it's it's a tighter cut. Ah, okay. Yeah. 
but there's a whole manuscript that follows, uh, which is still in process. Okay, so you're working on something which is like somehow a continuation of you know maybe. Yes. Yeah. Which takes takes those uh, concepts forward, but also which focuses on a theme within Jonah Whale and uh, the Atlas of Lost Beliefs, which is the interplay between uh, continuity and extinction. That for me has become a, a key theme. So that, that sort of resonates at all levels from uh, intimate and personal to the more epic and historic. Right. Okay, perhaps we could uh, end with a reading from Jonah Whale or Atlas. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, let me read a poem from from this book which I haven't actually read I realize I haven't read it aloud before to, a, to an audience so let me share that it's called Natural History and it goes like this a history of mammoths salted away in warehouses scrawled in chalk sleep is a secret you once overheard. A history of rivers snaking down steep slopes walled in glass. Clay is a wisdom that leaves no fingerprints. A history of ballads that dolphins sang about horizons broken by microphones. Shale is a darkness you struggle to weigh. A history of drought Gulls circling above gaunt hills, waiting for rain to wash the words away. Words are rapids that drown us all. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you have another one? Maybe one more. <laughs> really? Uh, okay. <laughs> from from Jonah Whale, from Jonah Whale stroke the Atlas. Yes, please. Okay. Well. Aha. Okay, I could read. Okay, let me read one called Printer. And Printer is uh, is uh, is a homage to Francesco Grifo, who was the inventor of italics. Follow his shaking, roasted hand. He sets chisel against wooden edge, points burin at plate, strikes lead against wedge, lays kern against grain. And so through the night rams out the ringing cavalcade of words. The ink rains down in neat lines and orchards planted on the sheet. Psalms, verses, prayers grow. He prunes them all with wayward grace. The page burns bright, the typesetter's eyes grow rimmed with red from staring at tight, infinitely small and mocking margins. His rained lust explodes in hot metal, then fine brocade. Most mornings he ends up drunk in a canal, bruised from a brawl. One day he will swing from a hangman's rope, singing to the last, Yes, in three languages, yes. I announce, I declare, I proclaim it. I was manic enough last night to smash through all the typefaces, to drug every font, 
and now in my own sharply cut sans serif, I've slugged this by dimming candlelight for today's edition. This crazed compositor's invocation to a dawn that will break over Venice without his help. Where I'm going, there's blazing horror and no gentle restoration. Pitch, the only ink. Flame, the only imprint. And icy darkness, my lord, high censor. Find harbors, all your galleys that sail out of my mind's bedeviled press. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was lovely to be in conversation with both of you. Yeah, it was great talking to you and hearing you read the poems. And yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Ranjit. This was the Nether Quarterly podcast series. Thank you for listening. Do subscribe to Nether Quarterly on Instagram or join our mailing list to stay tuned to future episodes.